Hello, I'm Michelle Carnegie and I'm talking today with Sarah Roman and um, Sarah's going to uh, give us a podcast which is an introduction to BEPS. Sarah, would you mind um, starting explaining by what BEPS is, please? Sure. So BEPS is an acronym and it stands for Base Erosion and Profit Shifting. So you might wonder what does that actually mean? Um, BEPS is something that's uniquely available to multinational businesses. Base erosion is effectively trying to minimise the amount of tax that you pay in a high tax jurisdiction that's eroding your tax base. And profit shifting is about pushing your profits out of a high tax jurisdiction and into a low tax jurisdiction, such as offshore, so that you end up paying little or no tax on those profits. And together, those two things are BEPS. Okay, so... so um... Thanks for that, Sarah. So what exactly does that look like in practice, sort of base erosion and profit shifting? Could you give us an example? Yeah. So large multinationals might have really valuable IP that they use worldwide in their business, and they might transfer that IP to an offshore company and then have their local operating companies pay royalties to that offshore company for the use of the IP. And that has two effects. The first is that the royalty payment itself might reduce the amount on which you pay tax in the operating jurisdiction, and that's probably a high tax jurisdiction. And the second effect is that the royalty payment itself is not subject to, to tax in the hands of the recipient because it's been paid to an offshore zero tax jurisdiction. And these are the sort of harmful tax practices that BEPS is really trying to clamp down on because the lost tax is obviously a big concern for governments, but also generally, you know, most people see these news stories about the low levels of tax that large corporations pay, and it just doesn't seem very fair to them. As a BEPS is an international and sort of cross-border problem, presumably you need quite a lot of buy-in internationally to tackle it. That's right, and, and that's the point of the BEPS project, is to get buy-in internationally so that the measures can be implemented to stop these harmful tax practices. And I believe there are currently uh, 141 countries and jurisdictions who have signed up to BEPS. Wow, that's quite impressive. So what's come out of this uh, BEPS project so far? Uh, so back in 2013, the first set of BEPS actions were published uh, that was shortly followed by the, the recommendations as to, as to the measures to be implemented. Then over the last eight years or so, there's been a lot of work internationally to implement these BEPS measures. However, the first set of BEPS recommendations didn't manage to resolve all the issues. In particular, they left the issue of the taxation of the digital economy to be dealt with at a later date. And so that's why in 2021, the newest BEPS recommendations were released. And these are often referred to as BEPS 2.0. BEPS 2.0 contains two measures which are specifically aimed at the challenges faced in taxing the digital economy. What do you mean by the digital economy, Sarah? The digital economy is basically referring to the fact that whereas in the past businesses had physical presences in countries, shops, factories, etc., now a lot of business is online. And so they don't necessarily need to have a physical presence in the countries in which they operate. And this digital economy presents challenges for most traditional tax systems, essentially because the existing rules weren't developed with digital businesses in mind. So broadly, what BEPS 2.0 is trying to achieve is to ensure that businesses are taxed in the place where they generate value and profits. All right, so, so, what, so what are the BEPS 2.0 measures? 
BEPS 2.0 contains two measures or pillars as they're referred to within BEPS. Pillar one aims to align taxing rights more closely with the physical location of the customers who are driving the revenue, regardless of whether the business itself has a physical presence there. And this measure is really targeted at the very largest multinational businesses, those that have an annual global turnover above 20 billion euros. So it's really pillar two that's probably going to have the wider impact on business because it applies to multinational groups with an annual revenue in excess of 750 million euros. So you can see a lot more groups will be within scope. I see. So, so, so what's pillar two then? Pillar two is often referred to as the GLOBE rules, and that stands for Global Anti-Base Erosion Rules. And very simply, these rules look at the overall effective rate of tax that a business pays in all the countries in which they operate. And if that effective rate comes out at less than 15%, then the business has to pay a top-up tax so that it gets up to 15%. There's, there's also a second strand to Pillar 2, which is called the Subject to Tax Rule. And that rule um, gives jurisdictions greater rights to levy withholding tax on outbound payments made by their residents. These rules are targeting outbound payments made to connected parties, where the recipient is going to pay less than 9% tax on the receipt. I see. So, so what, why, why does Pillar 2 have two elements to it? Are the two of them linked? The, the subject to tax rule operates as a standalone rule, so it's separate from the GLOBE rules. Uh, the subject to tax rule was something that the developing countries really pushed for uh, during the BEPS process as they felt that the GLOBE rules would not adequately, adequately protect their interests or protect their tax base in their country. Um, and that's because multinational businesses who have to pay a top-up tax under the GLOBE rules will probably choose to pay that tax in their headquarter jurisdiction and it's likely that would, would probably be a, a developed jurisdiction. Oh, I see. I see. So, so could you tell me a bit more about the GLOBE rules then and who exactly are they likely to apply to? I mean, if you had something like a UK retailer of widgets with a branch office in the Republic of Ireland, for example, would that be caught? Perhaps, but only if the retailer is pretty large. The GLOBE rules will only apply to groups with over 750 million euros in revenue, which operating two or more jurisdictions. And in assessing whether this threshold is met, you look back for four years and if the group had in excess of 750 million euros in revenue in any two of those years, then the group will be within scope of the GLOBE rules. So will these groups catch large domestic groups? No, the OECD model rules only apply whether group operates in two or more jurisdictions, and that could be through having entities in different jurisdictions um, or by having a permanent establishment in a different jurisdiction. And the only the only activity that's excluded from that is international shipping. So what exactly is a group? So, so are, we, are we just looking at sort of a company and its wholly owned subsidiaries or does it go any wider than that? No, it's, it's not just wholly owned subs, it is broader in this context. So in this context, the accounting meaning of group is used. As a starting point, that means that any entities which need to be included in the consolidated financial statements of the ultimate parent will need to be included within the group. Um, and using an accounting test can mean that the definition of group is very wide and, and may include joint ventures and certain companies in a group in which a group only has a minority shareholding. Uh, the rules do, however, contain this concept of excluded entities. And essentially, any excluded entity will not be counted as part of the group for the purpose of the GLOBE rules. I see. 
Okay, so what sort of entities are going to be excluded under these rules? So the term excluded entities is defined in the rules and there are exemptions which apply for governments, international organisations, non-profits, pension funds, investment funds, real estate investment vehicles and certain types of holding entities. So whilst that list sounds like it could be really helpful for lots of businesses, actually there's a lot of detail around the definitions for these types of entities so it's definitely an area that businesses will have to look at closely to ensure they fall uh, properly within one of the exemptions okay so let's assume a multinational group is caught by the rules how would any top-up tax be calculated the rules are pretty complex and detailed but broadly each entity in the group has to work out its in-scope income and profits and also the tax paid. And the starting point for this is the numbers in the accounts. So you need to work this out for each group entity that is not an excluded entity, as I just mentioned. And these figures are then adjusted under quite a complex set of rules, which I won't go into now, but I just want to maybe note a couple of points. When you are doing the calculation to work out what the effective tax rate is, i.e. how much tax has already been paid, you only take into account taxes on profits and income. So that means any sales taxes such as VAT, any payroll taxes and any transfer taxes will not count and need to be stripped out. Um, the effective tax rate is also is calculated on a jurisdictional basis, meaning that income and taxes for entities in a jurisdiction are pulled together. So. Broadly, an entity will have to pay top up tax if, after it's run those calculations, it has an effective tax rate of less than 15%. Okay, so um, assuming a top, top up tax is due, um, how is it paid? Again, these rules are really complex, but there, there are two ways that the top up tax can be paid. The primary mechanism is effectively that the parent entity pays the top up tax for entities beneath it. To the extent that isn't possible under the rules, then the remaining top up tax is paid by other group entities in jurisdictions that have implemented what's referred to as the under tax payments rule and where the entity has tangible assets or employees on the ground in that jurisdiction. Right, so we've heard um, quite a bit about how these rules work. Um, when, when are they going to come into force? Currently, the time frame is a little unclear. Originally, the OECD said the globe rules were, for the most part, to be implemented in 2022 and come into force in 23. However, it looks like that time, time frame has probably slightly slipped already, as the OECD has yet to publish some of the key documents, such as the implementation framework. And these are not expected to be published until later this year. As for the UK implementation of the globe rules, the UK government recently announced that these rules will apply from 31st December 23, and we are expecting UK draft legislation this summer. Uh, on the EU side, the EU member states have, have also yet to agree on the timing uh, for the implementation of Pillar 2. Wow. I guess we're going to do, just have to wait further updates on when these rules will actually come into force. I think there is a lot there for large businesses to be thinking about. So hopefully this podcast has been helpful in providing a summary. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Michelle.